In their words, Grandad has to buy a new kidney using cryptocurrency. Oh my gosh. Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss this year's Electronic Entertainment Expo, otherwise known as E3 2019, with my guest, Laura Dale. I'm Laura Dale. I'm a full-time video game critic, and I have a couple of books on the way, one of which is about video game character bots. <laughs> Laura has been following E3 for the last 15 years, first personally and then professionally, so I wanted to get her thoughts on how the event has changed, what, if anything, it still has to offer, and how, if at all, it reflects the current state of video games. The first memory I have of an E3 was I bought one of those Nintendo fan magazines back in the mid-2000s, and it came with a DVD that had select clips from Nintendo's E3 press conference that year. Oh, wow. And the one that sticks in my mind is it was the reveal trailer for The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, and it was the first GameCube Zelda that had the realistic art style, and it had this very dramatic music, and Miyamoto comes out on stage with a master sword, (laughs) and... This was my first real realisation that E3 was a thing, was just these isolated clips. I didn't know that other companies were there. I was just like, Nintendo did a Zelda. Oh, wow. That's so adorably retro. It was in a pre-broadband internet era. Like This was before YouTube. It was the only context I had was this trailer happened on a stage somewhere and some people were important enough to be in that room. Who were they? I didn't know. It is wild to think about the concept of E3 without Twitter. Like, without people live-tweeting it constantly. Yeah, it's weird to think about E3 in a pre-internet age, even, when when it really was just a trade show. You had press, you had people who were going to be buying video games for physical retail stores. It's a very different era. (laughs) Yeah, how else do you think that E3 has changed since then? Well, the obvious thing in the last couple of years has been the shift to pre-recorded video conferences. We saw Google for for their Stadia. They had a a pre-recorded video that went out near E3. Sony wasn't at E3 this year, but they've started doing their State of Play videos, which are essentially the same sort of thing. Nintendo, obviously, for several years has been doing pre-recorded videos rather than renting stage space. I think it's become such a part of E3 at this point that Devolver Digital, who always make their E3 content about making fun of the state of E3 and the state of the games industry, this year their whole joke was instead of doing a big stage show, they did a Nintendo Direct presentation. It's clearly like part of the direction that the industry is going because mm. it it helps to control pacing because they're not worried about reacting to a live audience. They're not worried about having to do live interviews with people who might be nervous on stage. But on top of that, it it saves them the huge production budget that these things can sometimes have. And that, that has for a long time been a big part of E3, this idea of have a big lavish stage show to make people think more positively of your game. But I think most publishers are starting to realise what people really want to see is just very quick, concise blasts of these are the games coming. Like, if 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 you can give us a 40-minute concise video that says, here is the next year of games, I think a lot of people prefer that to two hours of dragged out, slow presentation of that same information. And you weren't at E3 this year, but have you ever actually physically been there? 
Uh, yes, I wasn't there physically this year, but I have in the past been to a couple of E3s. I believe the final one I went to was just before they started letting the public in a couple of years ago. Smart. <laughs> you saw that <laughs> <Yes>. coming. <laughs> I, I, I heard that that was happening, and from what I hear, it has become a nightmare to actually do work on the show floor since then. And given that so much of it is pre-recorded now, do you feel like you're actually missing anything by not being there, or is it just basically the same experience watching it from home? In terms of the press conferences, it is very much the same situation. I don't think there's a huge amount lost. There's sometimes a bit of an energy to being in the room. Like, I, I remember being in the room when Sony revealed the Final Fantasy VII remake was happening. There, there was something quite exciting about being in the room and feeling everyone's excitement. But the main thing about not going there is, as someone who works in the industry, not having the opportunity to go and play a lot of these games and to see what these games feel like as opposed to just what they look like. Mm. One thing I've said for a long time that would really benefit the industry is if after E3 finished, we got in multiple countries, okay, here is all of our E3 software. If you couldn't make it out to the show here you can try it out. Have an opportunity for press to experience it if they can't make it out to LA. How beneficial is it to play games long before they're actually ready? There are obviously limits to how beneficial it can be. You have to go in with caveats. Some demos I think are definitely better than others at giving an impression of what works and does not work about a game. I remember a few years ago going for a hands-on demo of, I think it was Horizon Zero Dawn, the year that that game got revealed, and all you really did was walk around a very limited square with very defined boundaries you couldn't leave, and you could do a little bit of combat, but it felt like a very restrained demo, and that demo did not in any way show off how amazing that game was. It's one of my favourite games of all time. I think certain games, you can get a good feel for this is working, this is not, and if a developer is receptive to feedback, that can be beneficial. It can be useful to talk about the problems with a game early so that those things can be fixed before it's released. I think it can help sometimes to set people's expectations for a game. One game that has not had any hands-on opportunities at all, even this E3, that I think would really benefit from some is Cyberpunk 2077, in that that game, the hype and excitement have built up for that game to quite ludicrous extremes, because last year they were only showing it to press behind closed doors, and press couldn't put their hands on it, but they were shown gameplay, but the public couldn't see that gameplay. All that mystery and mystique around the game has sort of built it up into something that I don't think it could ever live up to the excitement that a lot of people have for it. I think if you can have an opportunity where press can get their hands on it and talk about, like, this is what it actually feels like to play. This is what it is as a video game, as opposed to some mythical concept we're not allowed to touch. That might help to bring some of those expectations in check and have a few people less disappointed when it's just a good video game and not right. the best thing that's ever happened in the world. Like, there are some companies that pull it off. Like, if you look back to when Fallout 4 was revealed and then released about six months later, they deliberately didn't show that game until they were ready to let people go hands-on with it and to touch it and see what it was as a physical game. Whereas some games get revealed with CGI trailers three, four, five years before they come out, and it does just give people time to build up these unrealistic expectations. Hmm. Given all that, I wonder if we should just 
scrap E3 and just announce games and then release them a few months later? Or do you think that would cause huge problems across the industry? <laughs> I I honestly wouldn't be opposed to that. I like that certain companies, I think Nintendo is pretty good at this, that they try not to show you too much of games until six months or a year from their release. Like, they try and talk about things that are coming out in their immediate future. I think that the problem you would have if you wanted to skip to that kind of model is if you were to look at a company like Microsoft in their E3 presentation this year, for example, if they were going to switch to a model where they don't talk about their games until very close to their release, you would probably have a year and a half in which they didn't talk about anything and they went radio silent. And... That's not necessarily good for them because they need to keep people thinking about their consoles so that people keep buying it. I don't see a world in which we could convince publishers to take that 18-month gap of just not talking about games to catch up to the point where they could talk about things that are just about to come out. Mm, I guess so. But then, yeah, you look at Sony, right? And they've just decided yeah. not to come to E3 this year. And I, I guess that's because, you know, we all know the place, the next PlayStation. Sorry, I won't call it the PlayStation 5 because they haven't officially <laughs> confirmed that. But the next PlayStation is coming. The next Xbox is coming. And I guess Sony's decision kind of reflects the fact that they just need to wrap up this generation and get ready for the next one. Did you feel like E3 2019 felt very different because Sony wasn't there? Or did the other publishers fill in that gap? I think that Microsoft definitely picked up a lot of the slack. <laughs> a lot of things that might have shown up in Sony's conference ended up getting some airtime with Microsoft, and I think that that was just a a reality of third-party publishers looking for somewhere to get in front of a lot of eyes. I think it was an interesting decision on Sony's part to let Microsoft have the stage and to talk about Next Generation unopposed, but it was definitely an odd year for E3 in that I think Microsoft wanted to talk about Next Generation because they didn't want to be left behind. Mm. Sony had obviously talked about their Next Generation machine, they, they had to be seen to not be falling behind, but it did lead to a lot of, we've got things coming next winter, just, just we can't say anything else but we're going to try and talk about it even though we can't actually say anything. Just wait for next winter, mm. please. And I don't know about you, but having read the interview with Sony, I think Mark Cerny, about the next PlayStation and mm. watched the Microsoft press conference, all I know really about the next generation is that loading times are going to be shorter. And I'm not sure that's enough of a sell for me. I don't think I'm ready for the next generation of consoles yet. I, I don't know, are you? So... <sighs> It feels like this has been a short console generation, and when you look at the numbers, it hasn't. It's mm. been about as long as any generation before it, and any time a new generation happens, I personally feel like it's coming too soon. It always feels too soon for me. <laughs> but I think that Sony and Microsoft have basically parroted the same talking points. Faster loading times, which... I appreciate as someone that plays a lot of JRPGs. Oh, sure. I, it, it, it'll <laughs> certainly be nice. But there's a lot of talk of these consoles being very future-proofed in their technology for things that most people can't do in their homes today. 8K resolutions, 120 frames a second gameplay. These are all great ideas in concept, but I don't know anyone that owns an 8K 120 frames a second TV in their home, or, or monitor really. Or even 4K! I mean the current generation yeah. of consoles can do 4K and I don't really know anyone who's got a 4K television. 4K adoption like feels like it's finally starting to happen. Like <laughs> I think a lot of people who 
play video games are thinking about if my TV breaks, I might replace it with a 4K. But I hope that that means that the next generation of consoles is looking to last for a very long time. Mm. I, I don't know if that's the case, but it would be very nice if they're just future-proofing so that this generation can last a decade or more. But then, as you say, it feels like time for the next generation because the numbers, you know, we've had a certain number of years, and it feels like yeah. these console creators are just going to carry on doing that like oh well this many years has passed guess we better release the next console there's part of me that's always a little sad about that because you get to the end of a console's life cycle and that's when it finally starts to have the best games that come out on it you get things like the last of us that came out at the end of the ps3 it's they finally worked out how to really get the most out of the technology and then they jump off to something new E3 is supposed to be about getting people excited for what's coming next, but one thing that seemed to be huge at this year's E3 was remakes and remasters. Does that disappoint Mm. you, or are you the kind of person who gets really excited about the concept of playing something you played as a kid, but just slightly better? (laughs) I think the video games are in a really unique place as a medium, in that they do age more considerably than other art forms, I think. Like, a A book or a film doesn't age in the same way that a video game does, where stuff that was released, say, in the mid to late 90s mechanically feels clunky. It doesn't display properly on your modern TV. It's very difficult to get a pleasant experience out of revisiting it. So the first generation of 3D video games really does benefit from being brought forward to a more modern playability. I don't necessarily think that the Xbox 360, PlayStation 3 generation of games, you know, a decade from now, I don't think that will need remastering in the same way. I'm personally excited to see some of these works of the medium that are very highly regarded as being touchstones in the medium's growth get revisited in ways that are easier to recommend with fewer caveats. I'm personally a fan of that. Yeah, maybe I'll finally play a Final Fantasy game. <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> if you try and go back and play Final Fantasy VII's original release now, it is a slow, plodding, clunky game that is difficult to tell what's happening visually. It's You have to go in with a lot of caveats to experience what a lot of people credit as, like, what got them into games. A lot of this year's E3 announcements were leaked ahead of time. Mm. Now you've broken news like this before, so how do you feel about people who consider leaks to be almost like spoilers? It's a difficult thing. I, My opinion on this has changed a lot over the years. I am someone who has leaked the existence of games in the past, and this year's E3 was one of the first ones that I've been working in the industry where I haven't leaked anything, but leaks have happened and I've watched them from a more outside perspective, and I think that certain announcements did really lose some excitement because of the fact they were leaked early. The one that comes to mind that I think really was hurt by it was Elden Ring, which is the new... uh, George R.R. Martin. Yeah, George R.R. Martin and the Dark Souls creators working together on a game. I think had we seen gameplay at Microsoft's conference, I don't think the leak would have mattered. Mm. But because all we really got during their press conference was Dark Souls creator George R.R. Martin, Here's a CGI trailer that doesn't really tell us anything. There's no date for it. There's no information on when we'll learn more. Because those bullet points that were in text in the leak 
Well, all that we really saw in the conference, I think that a lot of people were left disappointed. That there was this feeling of, oh, well, we know it's coming, but what will we see? Mm, not very much. I think that any game that gets leaked that, like, the leak doesn't constitute the entirety of what you see at E3, I think those end up not being hurt too much by it. Examples would be, like, Tales of Arise, which was another reveal during Microsoft's conference, that had a trailer for it, and that trailer looked very good. It looked like a considerable step up for the series. The fact that people knew it was coming and had seen screenshots, I don't think hurt the fact that the trailer itself felt new and exciting when it showed up during the conference. So yeah, I think that's that's the main difference, is if you see something in the conference that wasn't shown in the leak, if there's more to it than what got leaked, I think that it doesn't hurt the game too much. If the leak is everything you're going to find out, then it definitely does hamper the excitement. I think that for most video game reveals, leaks don't necessarily do anything to benefit the consumer. People like to know things early, and they get excited about knowing things early, but it doesn't necessarily benefit the consumer in any tangible way. I think there are sometimes exceptions to that. I think looking back at examples of things I've leaked, a couple of years ago I leaked the the fact that the PS4 was getting a revision, and that the primary base model was being replaced with a slim, a smaller version. I think in that case there was a benefit to leaking that, in that the revised version was not going to have an optical audio output, and it was going to be replacing the standard version of the PS4. And in that case, there was a benefit for if you want a PS4 that's not the Pro version, that has an optical port, you should probably buy one in the next couple of weeks because they are being phased out. That was a case where there was a tangible benefit to leaking something. Mm -hmm. Leaking the existence of a game like Elden Ring, all that really does is it does take the excitement away from the press conference and put it to the leak that happens. My stance today would be that that isn't necessarily important to the consumer to know and that maybe that is something you should just leave to the developer to release in their own time, because there, there isn't a benefit to knowing it early for the consumer. One of Ubisoft's announcements this year was a new subscription service called Uplay Plus, which lets mm. you play kind of a library of more than 100 Ubisoft games for a monthly fee. Obviously, EA already offers a similar subscription service with Origin. Sony and Microsoft have their own too. Do you think that these subscription services are the natural next step for games following the model of Netflix and Now TV and Amazon Prime? Or do you think that in the games industry in particular, there are reasons why it might not take off in the same way? I think that if you look at something like Netflix, I think the reason that Netflix did so well as a service and managed to last quite a while before it fragmented off into every company having its own movie streaming service, was largely that a lot of movie companies didn't have the infrastructure in place to digitally distribute and stream movies, and Netflix was a convenient middle ground where they could all go. It took time for lots of companies to start having their own streaming services, and even today, in terms of movie streaming, most of the places that do offer it are places like Disney that have the money to invest in a big infrastructure for something like that. I think video games, because of the fact that we've had digital downloads for quite a long time, and most games, you know, we do have things like Stadia happening soon, but I think because most of these services offer digital downloads of games, and games have already offered digital downloads, means that 
there's not a big infrastructure thing to overcome. It's meant that we've very quickly gotten to the stage of fragmented subscriptions rather than starting with a Netflix-style model where there is a subscription where you can get all of your games in one place. I think that fragmentation ultimately is going to be a big barrier to this being the way that everyone plays all their games, because Mm. I think most people don't have the money to subscribe to six different £10 a month subscription services to get all the games. I think what we will probably see is, is there one specific publisher that you really like? Maybe you will subscribe to them and get all of their games and end up making a discount and ignoring most of the other subscription models that aren't the one developer whose games you consistently like. It's not even just about money, I guess. Like The difference between television and games is that television takes less time to consume, right? So if you're paying for multiple television subscription services, that's fine because you can watch a different show every Every night but if you're paying for multiple game subscription services but the games that you're playing are 40 hour games then you might only have time Ooh. to play one game a month yeah and then it's not financially worth it exactly like if, if i don't have time for two weeks to watch any netflix i don't feel like i've lost out too much because if, if you know if i get through half a season of something in a month i've probably made my money's worth mm. but yeah if i have a microsoft xbox subscription and a Ubisoft subscription, and an EA subscription. If I don't play a quarter of the way through a game from each of those services, I've probably spent money and not gotten anything from it that month. Speaking of Ubisoft, do you think that Ubisoft's conference this year reflected the company's continual insistence that it does not make political games? Oh my goodness, I have thoughts and feelings about this. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) Ubisoft are a company who largely make games from the Tom Clancy franchise that if you've ever read a Tom Clancy novel are usually political thrillers and there's usually a lot of politics in those but definitely not politics um <laughs> the the one that gets me is Watch Dogs Legion it is a game set in a post-Brexit Britain where extremism is on the rise there is a totalitarian authoritarian government that is clamping down on everyone it's become a a hellish police state. There is human trafficking happening in Camden Market. In their words, Grandad has to buy a new kidney using cryptocurrency. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if, if nothing else, a game set in post-Brexit Britain where there are drones flying around and there's no NHS anymore, that feels like a political statement. That is, if nothing else, implying that when Brexit occurs, we will probably lose our national health service. That is a political point being made, but mm-hmm. uh, it frustrates me no end that they are trying to deny the very obvious politics in their games because there is a vocal group of people out there who go, oh, but games should just be games. It's like, no, we've we've evolved as a medium to the point that we can have things that are just silly fun, but a lot of our art isn't just silly fun. It exists within the context of the real world and is interesting to look at from that perspective. You're missing the most interesting things about games if you insist they're not political. How do you feel about Bethesda's approach to the same kind of issue, which basically seems to be like, oh, we're going to take a really strong stand and come out and say bravely that Nazis are bad? Uh, So I like the idea of a video game about killing Nazis as much as the next person. I think that there is a point to be made that last year they did small bits of marketing where they did just acknowledge, hey, we're about killing Nazis, and that went very well for them. And as such, this year they went, oh, it went really well when we said we kill Nazis. 
let's just say that phrase about 20 times in five minutes <laughs> and hope that that's enough to win us praise is, hey, look, we still think it's good to kill Nazis. It's like, yeah, okay, we do get that you make games about killing Nazis, thank you for that, but you don't necessarily need to hammer that point home mm. that hard. Just say it's a game about killing Nazis. Okay, yeah, that's good, I'll play it. <laughs> is there a sense, do you think, that they're trying to garner as much praise as possible for taking a very, very weak stand? Oh, in, in Entirely. They want praise for making their video game enemy the one thing that we can all generally agree is a good enemy to have in a video game. Mm. No one feels bad about killing Nazis in a video game usually because they're Nazis. They are the example we hold up for genocidal evil. And as such, like, it's not like they're making a hard stance. It's not like they're taking a stance on a controversial topic that people have really divisive opinions on and that... It's not like taking that stance is going to wildly divide their fan base, but they want praise for it. Mm. They definitely think it's something that they should get a good pat on the back for. I don't think that anyone listening to this is going to be surprised to hear that games have been historically pretty poor at representing the different kinds of people <laughs> that exist in the world. And I feel like this year we saw a lot more black characters, though I'll obviously wait to hear how black critics feel about them. But when it comes to representation of trans people, one company in particular <laughs> seems to have fucked up. How do you feel about uh, Cyberpunk 2077? Yeah, so... I've been very cautious about Cyberpunk 2077, so um, things have not looked good for Cyberpunk 2077 in terms of its trans representation from the get-go. The company behind it, CD Projekt Red, has more than once put out tweets that are not particularly sensitive to the current ways we talk about trans people and came off as, at worst, offensive and at best, insensitive. Beyond that, if you look at the source material that Cyberpunk 27 is based on, it's based on a tabletop game, and there are some very concerning things in the tabletop game that, if brought forward to this RPG video game, would be problematic to say the least. In the tabletop game there is mechanics for changing your character's gender and doing so brings them closer to psychosis. It has the direct impact of destabilizing your mental health and making you, you know, oppose the rest of humanity. It's not great. I was willing to sort of brace myself and wait and see with the video game because I'm like, cyberpunk as a genre seems like one of those genres that would be perfect for good LGBT representation because like a key part of cyberpunk as a narrative genre is the punk aspect. It's this idea of people in society who are not having a good time generally finding empowerment through cyberpunk. But we'll talk about the thing that came out during E3. So there was an image that was released, I believe it was NVIDIA, the graphics manufacturers, to show off their new ray tracing tech in Cyberpunk 2077. And in the background of this image, you can see an advertisement for an energy drink, I believe it is. And there is a model in the shot who is, appears to be a trans woman in a leotard with a very very, very detailed visible penis showing through the leotard. I think it's important to stress this point. The level of detail is excessive. It's to the point that you can see veins running along it. It's clearly there to be a shock tactic. The tagline of the advert is mix it up, and it seems like it's making a joke at the expense of 
aha, there's some female face, but there's a penis. Like, the, the contrast is clearly meant to be humour. If this had been made by a development studio with a history of good LGBT representation and that regularly consults with LGBT people, maybe I could look at this and go, that's positive, it's a normalisation of trans women not necessarily having to have surgery to be seen as valid as women. But in the context of those existing problems, I'm like, okay, I'm uh, this isn't looking good. Someone from the development team, and I believe it was the artist who worked on this particular poster, did get interviewed by uh, a couple of outlets at E3, and their statement doesn't really help matters. The way they tried to explain this was, in cyberpunk and in the world of cyberpunk 2077, mega corporations run everything, and as such, advertisement is a big factor in the world, gratuitous advertisement is very, very common, and they sort of put the blame onto this fictional mega corporation going, well, they'll do anything to make money, so gratuitous, overly sexualized advertisement is just a thing, and trans people are a market, so they market to them with sexualized ads. They suggest in their statement that this is meant to be viewed by the player as a bad thing. It's meant to be viewed as, oh, isn't it bad that they're doing these over-sexualized adverts? The reason I think that that falls apart, personally, is if Cyberpunk 2077 the game itself avoided overly sexualized advertisements, I might believe them when they said that they put this in the game to be something they wanted the viewer to see as bad. They want the viewer to see an overly sexualized ad and go, that's not right, that shouldn't happen. But if you look at E3 2018 and Gamescom 2018, when they were showing press hands-off demos of this game, Every member of the press who left those demos was handed a big statue to advertise the game of a scantily clad cisgender woman in barely any clothes doing a very, like, boobs out, boobs first pose with her cyber things coming out of her arms. Like, CD Projekt Red have had zero fear about using sexualized women to sell their game. And when they do it, I don't think they're seeing it as a bad thing. I don't see any world in which they're handing out these big statues of scantily clad women with their boobs pushed forward as a meta-commentary on why sexualization of women is bad. I think they're doing it because they think it will sell and get attention. Which, you can't have it both ways. You mm -hmm. can't use sexualized women to market your game and then try and make a comment in your game about how overly sexualized advertising is wrong. Lastly, I think it's important to note the fetishization of trans women is a whole can of worms to get into in and of itself. Trans people, and particularly trans women, are really struggling to get acceptance in the world right now, but one of the few places that you do see trans women show up is being fetishized. Like, a lot of people won't accept that trans women are women in terms of uh, bathroom access, in terms of access to society, but they will happily look at overly sexualized porn of trans women. It's one of the biggest porn categories in the world. And it's one of those things that if your game is sexualizing trans women and using them as titillation or as fetishization, but you're not having anything in the game that shows them as humans, as people, that makes any kind of statement about their rights as members of society, then all you're doing is furthering existing fetishization of a group that, like, it's a big problem for already. I'm not saying that Cyberpunk 2077 won't have any plot lines that humanize trans people, but right now, we've not seen any of that. All we've seen is 
a very, very detailed penis on a trans woman in a poster from a studio that keeps making transphobic tweets based on a tabletop game that says that being trans will bring you closer to psychosis. It's not a great start. And I'm not sold by this statement that they gave. And like we've seen people like Innes McKendrick saying on Twitter, you only give people like this the benefit of the doubt up to a point, especially when it's causing harm to people. Mm, That's it. Like, maybe the social media tweets were from someone unconnected to the game. Maybe they're going to move away from the source material. Maybe it's just a poor coincidence that this image showed up before we got a chance to see any of the very pro-trans things that will be in the final game, but there's only so many times that the bad, negative issues can come up before you have to go, okay, until you show me something to the contrary, I'm going to expect the worst out of this. Yeah. And it's why, like, as exciting as that game looked when I saw gameplay, I'm just very cautious of it. And I wish I could get more excited about that game, because from a technical level and a grand scope level, it looks like a fantastically made game, and I generally love cyberpunk aesthetics, and I wish I could get more excited. <laughs> Another big problem with huge game development studios is obviously crunch. This is something we've been talking about a lot. Do you see any evidence from this year's E3 that any of the big companies are paying more attention to issues around things like crunch? One of the big games that was expected to be a big part of Nintendo's E3 this year was Animal Crossing. And that was meant to be a 2019 release and it got pushed back to March 2020. And initially there was no statement given for that, but Nintendo have since talked about it in interviews and said the reason they delayed it was so that they wouldn't have to crunch their staff. It was very important to them that their staff maintain a good work-life balance and that their families came before pushing the work. I think Nintendo has for a long time been a good company company at that, but it was a very nice example to see of a company actively saying, we delayed the game because we don't want to overwork our staff. What was the most positive thing that you took away from this year's E3, whether that's an overall trend or maybe just a specific game that you're really excited about? Honestly, the most positive thing I took out of this E3 was the continued overlap between Microsoft and Nintendo. Traditionally, video game companies have all been very self-inward focused, and it's almost been like a little bit of a battleground. And I think Microsoft has been really good about trying to push for things that are better for everyone in games and being a little less competitive with people. This is less E3, but I'll get into the E3 in a second. (laughs) Over the last couple of years, we've seen things like Microsoft being the big people vocal about cross-play support, where people on different consoles can play online with each other, When they developed the adaptive controller for people with disabilities, they were very open about, if other platform manufacturers want to come and talk to us, we are happy to let you support this tech on your consoles. If we look at E3, we keep seeing Microsoft-exclusive games that they own the rights to coming to the Switch and going like, okay, well, we don't have a handheld for games. Nintendo has a handheld system. Why not put the games over there? You know, that's a system that they feel at home on. Let's let them use them. We've seen in the past things like Cuphead and Hellblade this year. We saw Super Lucky's Tale get announced for Switch during E3. We got Banjo-Kazooie, who is very much associated as a Nintendo character, even though Microsoft now owns him, being put into Smash Brothers. It's just nice and pleasant seeing Microsoft willing to play nice with Nintendo. 
and it just felt weirdly positive. <laughs> it, it's nice to see a, a platform holder that is not just walling themselves in and thinking the best thing for us is to keep all the exclusives close to our chest and not let anyone else near them. Do you think it reflects promise of a more communal future for the games industry, or do you think that as soon as the next generation of consoles comes along, it'll be all back to fighting with each other? I... <laughs> I think it helps that Microsoft just doesn't see Nintendo as a as a threat because they have a very different kind of machine. Um and Nintendo doesn't really see Microsoft as a threat. I think it's why we saw things like there was a Minecraft trailer last year where you saw a Microsoft and a Nintendo logo on the screen at the same time. It was lovely. I, I doubt that we will see those walls between Sony and Microsoft break down anytime soon. Sony has been pushing back against the idea of cross-play support on multiplayer for as long as Microsoft's been talking about it. I think that rivalry will last for a while longer, but I like that Microsoft is vocally trying to break it down. A lot of the things over the last year they've been trying to do are just like, hey, wouldn't this be better for everyone who plays games? Let's just, let's just get on board with these pro-consumer trains. Like, <laughs> even if they've not got many games right now that I want to play, I appreciate that they are trying to make things better for everyone. <laughs> Laura has recently returned to the freelance life, so if you'd like to find out what she's up to, you can follow her on Twitter at Laura K. Buzz. I'm Jerrica Weber, and if there are particular games or topics you'd like to hear about, feel free to tweet your ideas to at TalkingSimPod. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at Jazz Mickle. Talking Simulator is edited by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. Parks with an E. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. We joke, but like so many video games have that camera behind the character perspective that you do spend a lot of time looking at people's butts. Exactly. It seems like a joke concept, but sincerely, so many character designs rely on the rear silhouette of the character to be recognisable, but the butt <laughs> is often a genuinely interesting part of a character design. I mean, it's where our eyes go first. <laughs> <laughs>